Maybe you've heard about Mary and Abe Ayala. If not, I want to tell you about them and their children and their dilemma. Mary and Abe met and, and fell in love and, and got married and shortly began having a family. And they had a son and, and very quickly thereafter had a daughter, Anissa. And as families do, they got in the hustle and bustle of life. And before you know it, 16 years had gone by. And Anissa was 16 years of age when, she got the, when they got the news, that news that, that pierces the heart like a dagger, that their 16-year-old daughter, Anissa, had terminal leukemia. Without a bone marrow transplant, she would die. They checked the bone marrow registry, but there were, were no matches. So quickly, Abe was checked, and Mary was checked, and, and, and this his older brother were checked, but they all did not match. None of them matched. What were they to do? Anissa, 16 years old, beautiful Anissa, dying of terminal leukemia. What would you do? What they did, even though they were in their 40s, they decided to try to have another child, hoping against hope that that new child would be a tissue match to save Anissa. As soon as the critics heard their plan, the critics began to mount. How dare you? Unethical, immoral, to bring a child into the world to, to donate a tissue to save another child. But Mary and Abe didn't care what the critics thought. They had a child to save. Very quickly, they became pregnant. And as the pregnancy progressed to the point that they could do tissue samp- sampling, blessings of blessings, Marissa Eve, Anissa's little sister, was a tissue match. And 14 months after the birth of Marissa, Eve, the bone marrow transplant took place and Anissa's life was saved. Now I have some questions for you. Why did Mary and Abe bring this child into the world? Why did the innocent baby have to shed its blood? Because it was needed in order to heal and to save. And in the face of critics, Abe said, we thought we were going to lose a daughter and now we have two Leukemia. Leukemia is cancer. Cancer cells are cells that have lost self-control, cells that no longer operate in harmony with their programming, cells no longer are operating in harmony with the laws of health. And ultimately, death will ensue unless some intervention, some intercession is done to put the cancer into remission unless the cancer cells are changed back to their original precancerous healthy state. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. Without the shedding of Christ's blood, there could be no remission of sin. We could not be changed back to our original pre-selfish, loving, God-like state that God created mankind and Adam to be. Now, no one knows why Anissa got leukemia. But what if I were to tell you that she got leukemia because at the age of five, she disobeyed her father's command to never play and drink the pesticides. And she played in the garage with the pesticides and got exposed to this toxin. It was direct exposure to this toxin that that ultimately resulted in the development of leukemia. If the leukemia was a direct result of the disobedience of her father's command, would you say that justice would require her father to let her die? Would you say that justice would require her father to kill her for her disobedience? What would justice require if that justice were predicated or based upon the law of love? That is the law upon which justice is based. 
What if the Father had said, in the day that you disobey and drink the pesticides, you will surely die? If he had said those words, would he then need to let her die in order to be just? If the father did warn his daughter, in the day that you drink, you will surely die, why would he say such such a thing as a threat or to protect? And once she had this terminal condition, what was needed? What do the laws of health require? In order to be just, in order to not violate the laws of health, what must transpire? Someone must pay the hospital administration to heal the child? No, the cancer must go into remission. The unhealthy, deformed cells must remit, and the only way to make this happen was a remedy and a cure. So why did God say to Adam, in the day that you eat, you will die? Because he would be forced to kill? Or because mankind would deviate from the law of love, the law of life, and without intervention, the only consequence is ruin and death. And once they infected themselves with this terminal condition, what was needed? A remedy and a cure. And Christ came to provide that remedy. Some struggle with this because of statements in the Bible which seems like God is mad and angry and wrathful and going to kill them. We had question about that in our question time this morning. I'm going to read to you an example from Ezekiel chapter 24, verses 2 and 9 through 14. This is God speaking to the city of Jerusalem. The city of murderers is doomed. I myself will pile up the firewood, bring more wood, fan the flames, cook the meat, boil away the broth, burn up the bones, now set the empty bronze pot on the coals and let it get red hot. You will not be pure again until you have felt the full force of my anger. I, the Lord, have spoken. The time has come for me to act. Oh, that's pretty serious, isn't it? Now, I believe, I believe God spoke those words. I believe the inspired record that those words are an accurate reflection of what God was saying. But we can't just stop with, did he say it? We have to go with the next question. Well, let's see what actually happened and what actually happened. Because of the refusal of the people to heed these warnings, because of the refusal of them to practice God's methods and principles, God set them free. He stopped interceding in their behalf. He removed his protective hand at their insistence, and the Babylonians came, and the Babylonians burned and destroyed the city. Then why would God speak like this? Why would he do such a thing? Hosea 4.16, the Israelites are stubborn. Like a stubborn mule, how can the Lord feed them like lambs in a meadow? Do you understand the meaning? They don't listen. How can he speak soft words to people who don't listen? Imagine that you have a son. He's 10 years of age, and your son is stubborn, stubborn like a mule. When you tell him to pick up his room, he backtalks and won't listen. When you tell him to turn off the TV, he ignores you. He's stubborn, stubborn like a mule. And when you, and you go out to one of the... the national parks in the area that have some steep canyon walls. And he meets a young man there that he is playing Frisbee with. And you see your son looking up at the Frisbee heading directly for the cliff. He's too far for you to reach. What would you do? Would you shout? But your son is stubborn, stubborn like a mule. Might you threaten? If you don't stop now, I will beat you raw. And if your son does not stop... If your son is stubborn like a mule and refuses to adhere to your warnings and he goes over the cliff, do you then trudge your way down there, 
pull off your belt and begin to beat him raw? Do you have to? No. Do you pull out your rifle to shoot him before he hits the bottom to punish him for not listening? No. If he does stop, if he does heed the warning, do you beat him raw? No. Why does God speak words like this? What were the people doing? They were heading for the cliff of spiritual destruction, destroying their minds. He was warning them in love. And so if your child, if you're screaming, if you're telling him, if you don't stop, I'll beat you within an inch of your life, but he goes over the cliff anyway. Violations of the law, the law of life, the law of gravity, result in death. You don't have to do anything except cry. Hosea 11.8, God speaking, Ephraim, Ephraim, how can I give you up? How can I let you go? And Jesus at Mount Olivet speaking, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to take you as a hen takes her chicks under her wings, but you would not. Oh, my son, my son, how long I've longed to protect you, to keep you safe, but you were stubborn, stubborn like a mule and would not listen. We are sick. We are dying. We need healing. Imagine that HIV-infected mother and father get together and have that child born HIV-infected. The child didn't do anything to deserve it, but doesn't the child have the full weight of the disease to deal with? This is the entire human race descended from Adam. It's not our fault. You don't need to feel guilty that you were born a sinner. You didn't choose it. I didn't choose it. Adam and Eve chose it for us. We didn't have a choice in that matter. But having been born into the world, we have the full weight of the disease to deal with. In that baby who is born HIV positive, it cannot cure itself. It needs something outside itself, something it cannot produce, something it cannot earn, something no amount of good behavior will procure. The HIV infected baby needs a remedy which will purge the infection from him. Humanity is in a similar condition. We are sinful. There is nothing we can do which can cure ourselves. We cannot cure ourselves from outside ourselves. Something, we need something, excuse me, from outside ourselves. We cannot produce it. We cannot earn it. And no amount of good behavior will buy it. Christ is our remedy. He came to do that which no human could do for themselves. To procure the remedy. To heal our condition. All within the bounds of God's eternal law of love. Now, what are the Christian advantages? Let's review five. Advantage number one, the proper diagnosis. See, as a doctor, one of the first things they teach us is how to diagnose. Because if your diagnosis is wrong, then your treatment is generally wrong, and people don't get well. So the first thing they teach is how to diagnose. The Christian advantage, the proper diagnosis. And the proper diagnosis we've gone through multiple times today. Lies were believed about God that broke the circle of love and trust. And the broken love and trust resulted in fear and selfishness in the heart of mankind. The fear and selfishness, also known as survival of the fittest, resulted in bad acts, acts of sin that damaged mind, character, and body. The wages of sin is death. Now on this planet, we have those two antagonistic principles, God's principles of, of love at war with Satan's principles of survival of the fittest. Why do we have the two principles on the planet? Because of God's grace, 
because of God's intercessions, because of God's work. You understand God's intercession. As soon as man fell into sin, God began interceding with the destructiveness of sin. He sent the, the four angels to hold back the four winds of strife. He puts the hedge of protection around as in the book of Job or the chariots of fire in the story of Elisha. He sends his agencies to hold in check the powers of darkness that would destroy. But he also began interceding in the hearts and mind of men. Genesis chapter 3, he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put a desire for good in the heart. I will convict. I will woo. I will draw. I will enlighten. My spirit will be poured out on mankind. God has been interceding in your heart and mind and in this planet to hold back the destructiveness of sin to give us opportunity to be healed and restored with him. The proper diagnosis. We are sick. We are no longer in harmony with God's methods of love. We prefer Satan's methods of survival the fittest. When I first met Jerry, he was in the ICU at Hamilton Medical Center in Dalton, Georgia. He was admitted because he had tried to kill himself of an overdose of medication. I was being consulted to assess further suicidality. After a few minutes of rapport building, I finally asked him what was going on in his life that brought him to the point of trying to kill himself. He began to cry and told me that his wife was leaving him. After some empathy and encouragement about the sadness of that, I, I asked him, um, well, I understand your wife's leaving you, but, but why would you try to kill yourself? And he said, well, I want her to come back. I want her to regret leaving me and decide to stay. I love her too much to let her go. I told her if she ever left me, I would kill myself and she would regret it. Then I asked Jerry, why, why if you love her, would you try and kill yourself? He said, because I want to keep her. Was this love? No. See, if he loved her, he would have sought her good. He would have sought to give himself for her. He would have sought to build her up to promote her well-being. But he was functioning on Satan's number one counterfeit, which is known as dependency, which is fear-based, self-based, need-based relationship, seeking to get from some other something that would gratify self, his self-worth, his self-esteem, his self-value, his peace, his contentment, his internal well-being. He was willing to draw from her and control her in order to make self feel better. This was not love. This was survival, the fittest, willing to walk on another for self. God's law of love is at war with Satan's principle of survival of the fittest. We have misdiagnosed the problem. We have thought that the problem with sin is actually the bad acts that we do that get us in trouble with the one in charge. Rather than realizing, as Christ taught in Matthew 5, that the bad acts are symptoms of a sick heart. If you had pneumonia, and with pneumonia you had fever, cough, chills, would the fever and cough be the disease or would they be symptoms of the disease? And if we misdiagnosed and we diagnosed you as, oh, I know, you've got fever and cough. And we give you Tylenol for your fever and cough suppressant for your cough, but we don't diagnose the pneumonia, so we don't give you antibiotics. Will you ultimately get well? No. The acts of sin, the acts of disobedience that we focus on are the symptoms of a sick heart and mind. Yet, like focusing on the fever and cough, we think the plan of salvation is about treating symptoms rather than treating the sickness of mind itself, the sickness of heart itself. It's about getting our misdeeds pardoned, our, our sins appeased, our, our transgressions erased from the record book, rather than getting our hearts and minds healed and restored to unity and oneness with God. Imagine being sick and going to the doctor. 
And when he comes in to examine you, you quickly offer your healthy brother in your, in your stead and ask him to examine your brother in your place. Am I ringing any bells here? Why would we do that? What did David pray to God? Search me and see the wicked way in me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Why would we want to hide our wickedness from God? Because we don't trust him. Because we believe he's out to get us rather than out to heal us. God is your friend. He wants to heal and restore. Imagine you're sick in the hospital with pneumonia. And you work all evening long to get the nurse to erase the record of how sick you are so when the doctor comes over, he won't know how bad off you are. How we work to get our records erased so the father won't know how sick we are. Why do we do that? Because we don't trust the father. Because we believed about, we believe lies about the father. And what do lies do? Break the circle of love and trust. And the entire cascade of destructive events. And then we devise all types of constructs to be protected from God rather than running to Him with open hearts and minds for healing and restoration. And I want to be clear now. I am not saying that Christ didn't need to die for our salvation. He did, and you're going to see why in a minute. I am not saying that Christ wasn't humanity's substitute. He was, and you're going to see how in a minute. He took our burdens, He took our liabilities, He took our disability in order to literally, actually set it right with God, fix it, heal it, restore it, recreate it, regenerate it, to actually put this race back in right relationship with God. I am not saying that God and Christ didn't pay a high price. They paid the ultimate price, the highest price the universe had to offer. But I am saying we have missed the real problem. We are focusing on fever and cough and have forgotten about the pneumonia the sickness of heart and mind that lead to the symptoms, the bad acts. And worse than that, some people actually teach that the doctor must kill us for being sick. What is the proper diagnosis? What is the problem that sin caused that the plan of salvation is designed to fix? We believe lies about God, which broke the circle of love and trust, resulting in a transformation of our hearts and minds where we operate on selfishness and fear rather than in harmony with the circle of love. Advantage number one, the proper diagnosis. Advantage number two, the truth about God is revealed by Christ. That the Father is exactly as Jesus revealed Him to be. That we have a trustworthy physician, Father, who has been on our side even before we knew we needed Him. That we didn't need anything or anyone to persuade the Father to be on our side. He has always been on our side. And that Christ's death in no way changes the Father or is needed to impact persuade or in any other way adjust the Father's attitude towards us. Scripture, I think you have them listed in your handout. Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who is it that's for us? God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare a son but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that justifies? Who, who is it that sets us right? It is God. Who, who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died? More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Understand the meaning. 
in addition to, along with the Father. We not only have the Father interceding for us, hey, don't forget, Jesus is up there with the Father, and they're both interceding for us. And if you go back to verse 24 in chapter 8, you will read that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in groaning and moaning. The the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in unity interceding for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Who loved the world? God. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, fathers in the room, what is a greater sacrifice if you were in the situation? To sacrifice your son or sacrifice yourself? Your only son or yourself? Your son. Some actually think that the father's heart is not tender toward us, save his son's blood causing him to be tender toward us. And think about the meaning of that. The father isn't really tender. I know what we can do to get him to be tender. When he sends his son to us, we'll kill his son and offer him his son's blood, and then he'll be tender toward us. Wait a minute. Something's wrong there, isn't there? How must the father feel when people think of him as not loving us as much as the son? 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in the son reconciling the world to himself. God was in the son reconciling the world to himself. John 16, 25 through 27, Jesus is speaking and he says, though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I no longer will use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. In that day, you will ask in my father's name. I am not saying that I will ask the father in your behalf. No, the father himself loves you. Whoa, that's Jesus talking plain. Can he say it any clearer than that? The Father himself loves us. Philip, speaking to Jesus in John 14, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say are not my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. In Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is an exact representation of the Father. Fran was a 60-year-old lady who came to see me. She'd been a Christian her entire life. She was active in her church, taught Sunday school, volunteered on mission trips, was social and generally loved and appreciated. She had accepted Jesus as her Savior around 14 and had loved Him her entire life. But she had always struggled with a deep insecurity a deep-seated fear, a dark shadow of anxiety, worry hidden way in the back of her mind that she never told anyone about. She never spoke of it because she knew she wasn't supposed to have it if you love and trust Jesus as your Savior. But it was there. She was chronically anxious, chronically afraid, chronically insecure, chronically worried. She had been treated with a variety of anti-anxiety medications throughout her life and seen numerous counselors but never found peace. It was when she came to realize that the Father is exactly like Jesus that her fear went away. You see, she told me that she always loved Jesus, but she had been afraid of the Father. She'd always had in her mind's eye 
that she needed Jesus to protect her from the Father's wrath, that she needed Jesus to keep her safe in the judgment, always felt that Jesus was her friend, but the Father needed to be persuaded. It was when she realized that the Father was just like Jesus that she said her fear went away. As we've talked about this weekend, the Bible teaches us in Romans that the mind cannot be healed as long as we hold to lies about God. In John 17, 3, life eternal is knowing God. Why is this essential to come to know God? Why must we come back to this true knowledge of His characters revealed by Christ? Because without this true knowledge, we won't trust Him. And if we don't trust Him, we won't open the heart to allow Him to heal us. Imagine you have bacterial endocarditis. Bacterial endocarditis is an infection of the inside of your heart. If nothing is done, this infection grows and it will create little plaques that will break off and flick off in your bloodstream and cause strokes and it will eat away the valves of your heart and you'll either die of heart failure or you'll die of stroke. This is a terminal condition unless it's treated. Imagine you have this terminal heart infection and a man comes to you claiming he has a cure for you and he he has a substance he wants to inject that will cure you. You happen to be an American, and his name is Osama bin Laden. If you had a choice, would you let Osama inject you? Why? You don't trust him. How about if you have a loving father who is a physician, who's always been kind and gracious to you, always been out to help you, and he comes to you and tells you he has something that will cure you. Would you let him inject you? Yes. Will trust heal you? No. No, trust won't heal you. We aren't saved by faith or trust. We are saved by God's grace, by God's work, by God's activity, by God's energy, by God's regenerating power through His Spirit, by God working and healing. But faith or trust is the avenue which opens our heart to allow Him to do His work. If you have no trust, if you have no trust, but you have a remedy, will you get well without trust in the one who has the remedy? No, thus we must trust God. But what happens if you have trust? You really trust this physician, but the physician has no remedy. Will you get well? And for those of you who are theologically minded, the position of creating trust but not providing a remedy is in theological terms the moral influence theory, that Christ came to present truth to win us to trust, and that's all he did. And he didn't provide a remedy that heals And so that theory is rightly rejected because we need trust to be sure, but we also need a remedy because trust without a remedy, we trust him, but we're still dying. Satan, by the way, has tried to obstruct God in both places. He's tried to obstruct our ability to trust God. This started in heaven. Lies about God in heaven, which undermine trust. Lies about God in Eden, which undermine trust. Lies about God through all history and continue today, which undermine trust. He's always been trying to undermine trust. But he also tried to obstruct God from procuring and bringing us the remedy. Thus, at the time of the flood, he had the whole world on his side except one man. One man was righteous on the earth. One man named Noah. And the avenue through which the remedy, the Redeemer, would come had gotten very narrow. God had to take action. God had to take action in order to keep this avenue for the remedy to come open. He had to keep this avenue open. And so God acted. God acted to put millions of His children to sleep in the grave, to rest in the grave. Some suggest that what I said earlier uh, means that I don't believe God uses His power to kill. 
God has put millions of his children in the grave at the flood, at Sodom and Gomorrah, the 185,000 Assyrians, the firstborn of Egypt, over and over again. God has put his children in the grave. But look at the context. What was he doing? He was working to keep open the avenue through which healing and redemption would come. He was not working to make people pay for some wickedness that they'd done. He acted in times of Israel. Satan was working to destroy Israel, to shut down the avenue through which the Redeemer was come. He seduced them into idolatry over and again and again to shut down that avenue. And God sent his prophets to act. He withheld the rain for three and a half years. He had fire come down at Carmel. God was acting to keep open a channel for the Redeemer to come. Satan tried through the King Herod to kill baby Jesus. To kill baby Jesus. But God acted to protect him, to keep open the avenue for the Redeemer to finish His work. And He tempted Jesus throughout His life to try to get Jesus to turn back, to try to get Jesus to fail in His mission. But Satan failed to shut the avenue. Satan failed to kill the baby Jesus. Satan failed in His temptations of Christ. Satan failed to prevent prevent Christ from completing His mission. So now that Christ has defeated Him, a real remedy exists. And because this real remedy exists, Satan has only one strategy left open to him now. That is undermining trust in God so we won't take the remedy. So no matter how you describe what Christ did at the cross, no matter what language you use, no matter how you understand it, no matter how you explain it, Christ has achieved what is necessary for our salvation. Therefore, Satan's only strategy is to tell lies about God so that we won't trust him and therefore won't get well. Advantage number one, the correct diagnosis, that we are the problem, not God. We are sick. We need changing, not God. Advantage number two, the truth about the Father, which wins us to trust. Advantage number three, a real remedy that actually heals and restores and transforms back into fullness and unity with God. And Jesus Christ is that remedy. The question is how? And I'm going to share with you my current understanding with a couple of caveats. One, I believe it will be the, the science of the cross will be our science and song through all eternity. So whatever I share with you now will be growing and expanding as time progresses. And so I don't share with you the final word. I share with you a progressive word of understanding of what Christ accomplished for, the, for us on the cross. And it's also important for you to remember that it is not important that you understand how Christ achieved it in order for you to benefit from what he achieved. You don't have to understand how an antibiotic was developed or how an antibiotic works in order to benefit from taking that antibiotic. You don't have to be able to explain exactly what Christ did, write a 27-page paper on the intricacies of the atonement in order to be able to benefit from what Christ did. Does everybody agree? Okay? But you do have to trust God in order to benefit from what Christ did. So, with that being said, the remedy. Christ is a unique being. A unique being in all of universal history. You see, Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a perfect living being. And Eve was taken from his side. Two sinless perfect beings. You and I were not created that way. Do you realize that? We were not formed out of the dust of the ground. God did not breathe into our nostrils the breath of life. We came from a sinful mother and a sinful father. Psalms 51, we were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Jesus also was not formed out of the dust of the ground. 
God did not breathe into his human body the breath of life in the same way he created Adam, did he? He also was not born in the same way you and I were from sinful parents, was he? No, he had a sinful mother. Galatians chapter 4, 4. He was born of a woman under law, the law of sin and death. He took upon himself our infirmities, our position, our condition, our iniquities were placed upon him. He took our sickness. But who was his father? God was his father. So he was born with a heart and mind, not bent and twisted like ours, not egocentric when he came into the world, not self-centered as we are. He was born with a heart and mind, holy and pure, with the circle of love not broken in Christ. And thus we have a being now who has the circle, a human being, in which the circle of love is perfectly working and not been broken, but a human being who can experience the temptation that you and I experience to act in self-interest. For the Bible says that Christ was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. I think these texts are in your handout, Hebrews 4.15. And it says in James 1.13 and 14 that no one should say God tempts because each one of us are tempted, worn, drug away, and enticed by our own evil desires. So do we believe the Bible is true, that Christ is tempted in every way just like we are, and we are tempted by our desires, that Christ took upon himself a humanity through his mother that was capable of experiencing temptation like we experience it. But his mind and heart were not bent and twisted like our mind and heart. His mind and heart were in perfect unity with his Father. So when you put the pieces together, what do you see? The two antagonistic powers battling for supremacy warded out in the person, Jesus Christ. Which will win? Will Jesus act to save self and then lose? Will Jesus act to love and give himself and vanquish the infection? And so you look in the wilderness, the temptations. If you're the son of God, turn this rock into bread. Save yourself. Save yourself. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down off the temple. Prove yourself. Exalt yourself. If you're the son of God, bow down and worship me and all this can be yours. Save yourself. Save yourself. But the most telling example is in Gethsemane. And you look at the evidence. Draw your own conclusion. In Gethsemane, did Christ have powerful feelings in that experience? and, And if he would have followed those feelings, what action would he have taken if the feelings led his choices? Go through the cross or away from the cross? Were his feelings tempting him to save himself? Yes. Notice, he experienced temptation in every way, just like we are. But when every temptation came, save yourself, save yourself. Not my will be done, thy will be done. No one can take my life. I will give my life freely. Give myself, give myself. And thus the law of love is being reproduced in the human God-man, Jesus Christ, restoring fully into this creation God's original ideal. Christ overcame where Adam failed. And thus we read in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Once made perfect? I I thought he was always perfect. This is talking about once he achieved that victory, fully purging that infection which tempts to self-interest. And where did he fully purge it? 
at the cross. You see, the reason his death was necessary because if any point he would have acted to stop, if he would have not continued to give himself, if he would have stopped and, and put a halt to it, and you realize Christ could have put a halt to it, right? He wasn't like the two thieves up there who were helpless and powerless and had no choice. Christ could have wiped them out with a thought. You remember I Dream a Genie? She'd like blink her eyes and make things happen and bewitch would twinkle her nose and make things happen. Christ didn't have to do that. He just had to think it. Be gone. They'd been gone. You understand the significance that on the cross, the Creator with all power, all power had been given to Him. In John chapter 13, if you remember, all power had been given to Him. And on the cross, the man with all power, what do you learn when He allows His creatures to extinguish His life? No one can take it from Me. I will give it freely. The law of love being restored fully, overcoming that temptation. And on the cross, he had it too. Others he saved himself, he can't save. You come down off the cross, we'll believe you. Save yourself, save yourself. But every step of the way, he gave himself, gave himself. And thus, he vanquished in humanity a literal, actual, restoring, regenerating, rewriting into the creation God's character of love. Advantage number one, a correct diagnosis. Advantage number two, the truth about the Father which wins to trust. Advantage number three, a real, a real remedy, a perfect character, holy and true, totally in harmony with the law of love. Advantage number four, the Holy Spirit to administer the remedy. Read with me in your handout, John chapter 16, 7 and, and 12 through 15. Jesus speaking, but I tell you the truth, it is, good f- good, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now get this, he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said that the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. What is it that Christ has that we need? You've heard the exchanged life. Christ has achieved perfection of character. And he offers to give it to you and me. The Holy Spirit takes what is Christ and reproduces it in us. He takes the mind of Christ and reproduces it in us. Romans 5 5, it says that he pours his love into our hearts. God is love. He pours Himself into our hearts. He is love. He is the law of love. He is the character of love. And thus in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. He pours Himself out. He pours Himself into our hearts. And we can say as Paul, it is no longer I that live, but Christ Jesus lives in me. And then as Peter says in 2 Peter, we then become partakers of the divine nature. What is the divine nature? The nature of love. How did that nature get back into this species? Christ came, unity with the Father, won the victory, developed the perfect character, vanquished the infection that tempts itself, and thus we have the perfect character of God restored in humanity, and the Spirit regenerates it from Christ into us. This is the covenant, Hebrews 8.10. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write it on their hearts. 
I will be their God and they will be their people. What is the law he's going to put in? The law of love, the character of God. God is love. And we read in Romans the circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, the regenerating, recreating work of the Holy Spirit as he takes the character of Christ that Christ achieved and reproduces it in us. Advantage number one, the correct diagnosis. Advantage number two, the truth about the Father, which wins us to trust. Advantage number three, a real, literal, actual, achieved, perfect character remedy purchased at infinite cost by Christ. And the Holy Spirit, advantage number four, which administers that remedy, reproducing Christ-like character in us. Advantage number five, the privilege of participating with God as members of His treatment team. And Jesus speaking in John 20. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. And with that, he breathed on them, received the Holy Spirit. Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. In Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are called to take the good news about God, about His plan to heal and to restore, to set minds free. We are called to do battle that the gates of hell may may not stand against it. You understand in battle, what kind of a weapon is a gate? You see people running into battle carrying gates? No, in warfare, gates are defensive weapons, right? Christ said that the gates of hell cannot stand against him. Understand, Satan lied, captured hearts and minds in darkness. Darkness covered the world, gross darkness to people. Christ is the light of the world, which lightens all men. Satan has minds in darkness, and he has put up his lies, his distortions, his misrepresentations. These are his gates, and he's trying to keep minds prisoned in the darkness of lies about God. But the truth about God is revealed in Christ will demolish the strongholds of hell, and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. And it is our privilege to take this truth to the world to set minds free. We are called to take the good news about God and his healing plan to the world. This is, the, this is living the law of love. This is walking the circle of beneficence. This is growing in the garden of giving. The more we give, the more we receive. It's the law of life. It's the law of the universe. Imagine the the fire hydrant in front of your house and the garden hose on the front of your house. Turn the fire hydrant on full blast and turn the garden hose on full blast. Which is giving away more water? Fire hydrant. Which is receiving more water to it? fire hydrant. The more you give, the more you receive. This is the law of the universe. God is the never-ending source of love. You can never give away more love than you'll receive. So how do we apply these advantages to our lives? The five advantages are also five steps we must take. Step one, accept, accept the right diagnosis. We are sick. We are the problem, not God. In accepting this right diagnosis, reject concepts which make God out to be the problem. Step two, examine and believe, examine and believe the truth about God as revealed by Christ, which dispels lies and wins us to trust. This requires that you actively search the truth about God as revealed in Jesus. Question everything. Question every teaching, every doctrine, and ask, if this is true, what does this say about the kind of person God is? 
as revealed in Jesus. It requires, as it says in Isaiah 118, that you reason things out, that you learn how to examine evidence and distinguish it from claims. And you become that mature Christian of Hebrews chapter 5 who has developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. Step one, accept the right diagnosis. Step two, examine and believe the truth about God. Step three, in trust, in faith, open the heart to God and invite Him in. Open the heart and invite Him in. And then the Holy Spirit is is poured out and He takes from Christ and makes it known to you. He takes the truth about God and enlightens. He takes the purity of Christ and cleanses. He takes the love of Christ and empowers. He takes the mind of Christ and makes wise. He takes the character of Christ and recreates. He takes the very nature of Christ and restores to oneness with God. Step four, having accepted our diagnosis, having been one to trust, having been cleansed and ennobled by the Spirit, choose to apply, step four, choose to apply the truth God reveals. Choose to live in harmony with His laws. Choose to give up unhealthy practices. Choose to engage in fellowship, church fellowship. Choose to study, to search for more truth. Choose to forgive where needed and repent where needed. And step five, as we accept our diagnosis, as we pursue the truth about God as revealed in Christ, as we open our hearts in trust to receive the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, the transfusion of Christ-like character, as we choose to apply what God has revealed, step five, choose to be conduits for God's love. As we receive God's love, we begin to think differently. We begin to feel differently. We have desires to live differently. It is then we must rise up and act differently toward others. This is a battle. We will see the truth. We will desire to love. We will desire to give. But powerful feelings will assail us. Feelings of fear. Feelings of insecurity. Feelings of resentment. Feelings of jealousy. All tempting us to save self, protect self, exalt self, gratify self. And it is then we must rise up. And step one, remember our diagnosis. We are infected with fear. Fear is part of the problem. And step two, review the truth about God which wins to trust. We can trust Him. He's on our side. Step three, choose to trust God and invite Him in. Open the heart. Ask Him in to bring His peace, His regenerating power, His ennobling influence. And step four, then choose to apply the truth as He reveals to our mind. And step five, move forward in love despite how we feel in the moment. Doing what is right because it is right. And right doing is pleasing to God. What is the Christian advantage? Jesus Christ, who diagnoses correctly, who reveals the way to the Father, the truth about the Father, and the life of the Father, who procured a real and actual remedy, who pours out the Spirit to heal, to recreate, and to restore, and who sends us as His ambassadors to share the healing good news to the entire world. This is the secret of life. This is the secret of love. This is the secret of happiness.